Lasso. This morning we'll go into the last phase in this sequence of meditations of awareness of awareness, the last phase according to the teachings of Padmasambhava in the text Natural Liberation. For the preceding three phases, he says, try this, do it for a day. Try this, do it for a day. He comes to this phase and he says, do this until you're finished. You know, do this until you've settled your mind in its natural state. And he gives a counsel, which is hardly ever followed anymore, uh, to actually settle your mind in, in its natural state before receiving Dzogchen teachings. Because he said, if you are still having this dysfunctional mind, and then get pointing out instructions on Dzogchen, on Rikpa, and so forth, it's most likely just going to turn into an object of the intellect, and then you'll latch onto it and become dogmatic. So, there are... There are reasons to receive teachings on Dzogchen, but not good reasons to overlook shamatha. So this morning, in this last phase, we'll, following the teachings of Padmasambhava, we'll be doing our best to expand experientially, expand our sense of the space of the mind. So there'll be exercises for that. These two, these extensions, which we'll do very shortly, some of you are, are familiar with them already, these two are transitional. It's not to suggest that you'll be doing these kind of, kind of g- gymnastics almost, that you'll be doing those for weeks or months on end until you achieve shamatha, but rather it's, it's more like a warm-up. It's very much very similar to this. Like some of you, I, I saw Carissa jogging today. I understand that before you jog, then you stretch a little bit if you're smart, right? Stretch a little bit, and then you got, go out. Well, this is really stretching. This is like the stretching before you go into the, the marathon of achieving shamatha, of just expanding your awareness up, down to the sides and so forth. And then when you kind of feel nice and loose, then you go simple. And you just rest in awareness of awareness, and that's your marathon run. Now, one of the extraordinary hypotheses about all of this. It's an experiential fact, allegedly for many people, and hypothesis for those who have not ascertained it yet, is that when we tap into the substrate consciousness and the space that goes along with it, we're tapping into a dimension of our existence that is not dependent on the, upon the brain or the body. So that's an extraordinary hypothesis. I do, I must say, I, I am astounded when I hear even modern Buddhists and, and friends of mine, and I respect them, and I think they're really good people, but I'm still astonished at, spe- at things people say. When I hear, hear people say, oh, whether this future life or not doesn't really matter, just be good in this lifetime, just focus this lifetime, that's really all we need to be concerned about. You know, but we don't need to deal with that kind of rebirth business, continuity of consciousness, karma. You know, all we re- just, f- be, just be focused here in this lifetime. Well, if, if it's unknowable, if it's unknowable, if what happens to consciousness at death is simply unknowable, then why not? If you can't know about it, then just be good. <laughs> be, be good, you know, <laughs> and you know, hang in there. But if this is something that actually can be known, if it's something that not just to theorize, not something simply to have a religious belief in, or a religious belief in materialism, which is just one more kind of religious belief as far as I can tell, if it's something that can actually be known, can be known, 
that there's a dimension of consciousness, and it's simply, very simply called the subtle continuum of mental consciousness. It's got a very unglamorous label to it, or substrate consciousness, or what have you. Uh, if that can be known, and if one can know that this, in fact, does not arise independence upon brain function, precedes the brain, carries on after the brain goes dead. In other words, it will have a continuity of individual consciousness after death. I, I really don't get it when people say, oh, whether it's true or not doesn't really matter. It's, it strikes me as like there's hardly anything more important. If that's, if that's true, if it's not true, then it's so easy. Then suddenly, whoo, pressure's off. The, the Christians, somebody just reminded me that many Christians believe that, you know, I think most Christians, if you're good Christians, that all you need to do is wait. Be good, have faith, be obedient, die, you get liberation. Very cool. So, kind of hang in there, enjoy yourself, you know. But it's liberation guaranteed at death. All you have to do is stop breathing, and you're, you're you know, got the third noble truth. And the materialists have exactly the same view. Almost, just almost exactly the same. All you have to do is stop breathing and get liberation. The only difference between the Christians and the materialists is if you're a materialist, you don't get to enjoy liberation. <laughs> and if you're a Christian, you do. <laughs> but at least you're liberated. I mean, that's the big thing, is if you, if you completely got obliterated, terminated, axed, wiped out, annihilated, at least all your problems are finished. And that's really pretty significant. That's really significant, right? Whereas this awful Buddhist theory that all the crap you've got in your mind right now you're going to get to carry with you like excess baggage into the next life. That's just disgusting. And if it's true, wow. So at first glance, this Buddhist theory of the continuity of consciousness, individual consciousness, is one, one thing I find some, some of my scientist friends kind of like, they don't like this one at all. Because uh, they've been trained. I mean, it's, it's like going to catechism. It's like being, going to a good Jewish rabbinical school. They've been trained to be materialists. I mean, just like, if you're not materialist, you're not part of our club, you know? And so with that base, some of them like the idea that kind of consciousness kind of dissipates into a cosmic consciousness. They like the notion of Dharmakaya. Kind of like, oh, okay. I think they all like the notion of instant liberation at death is what they really like. But the Buddhist notion because that's not the Buddhist notion, not, not unless you're an arhat or a Buddha. Uh, the Buddhist notion is that there's individual continuity of consciousness. It is discrete, it's individuated, and that carries on. And at first glance, such of you can look an awful lot like Cartesian dualism, which is really so roundly discredited, repudiated, ridiculed, laughed at, discarded, and abandoned uh, in modern science, that any Buddhist that looks like we're adopting a Cartesian dualist framework, you know, we're just excommunicated, out of here. But it's not. It's hard to persuade some scientists. And one philosopher of mine in particular, I have to say this, but I will keep the name anonymous, but one very distinguished philosopher of mine, we were having a one-on-one -on -one conversation 21 years ago, and she asked me, uh, are you a materialist? And I said, no, I'm not a materialist. She said, oh, you mean you're a Cartesian dualist? I said, no, I'm not a Cartesian dualist. She said, yes, you are. <laughs> that was the end of the conversation. She, there are only two boxes. You're either with us or against us. And if you're against us, you're stupid. Because you're a Cartesian dualist, and we all know they're stupid. 
Well, Descartes wasn't stupid, but it, what he did do, which was, I think, from a Buddhist perspective, I would say with total confidence, was an incredibly profound error, and that is he reified the body, he reified matter, and he reified mind. He reified both of them as self-existent, inherently existent, truly existent, absolutely existent, different types of substances. The res extensa of the physical world, and then the, the reality of the mind, the cognition as something that is immaterial, absolutely immaterial, does not have spatial extension. He took them to both be absolutely real and then had a little bit of problem putting them back together again, like he never could. And so he had, well, there's a whole theory there. But that's been repudiated quite roundly for the very simple reason is how on earth could they ever causally interact? How can an immaterial, and a really truly existent mind, soul, consciousness, that is immaterial, how could it ever impinge upon the cells, the chemicals and the electricity in your brain? And how could the chemical electricity in your brain ever impinge upon something so ghost-like, which really is ghostish, of an immaterial brain? And therefore, something's got to give. Something's got to give. And the great progress of, of modern science over the last 400 years has not been in, in terms of studying consciousness, illuminating the consciousness, nature of consciousness, the origins of consciousness, how it functions, its potentials, this is, or, or the mind itself. That's really not the strength of modern science. The great strength of modern science is matter, studying the objective, the physical, the quantifiable. And there, really fantastic progress. So if you're going to... If something has to go, what are you going to discard? That which you've made no progress in, or hardly any progress, or that which you really know a lot about? I think the answer is obvious. You either completely throw out consciousness, like some of the radical behaviorists did, or, if you're not that silly, then you say, okay, mind, consciousness do exist, but they are functions of what we do know about. And so matter becomes kind of an absolute reality, and mind, all mental states, all subjective mental states, become relative truth. In the modern world, I think that's really basically what it boils down to. Ultimate truth is the physical world, space-time, mass, energy, and relative truth is all subjective experience. Pretty much what it boils down to. So that's not where Buddhism goes. And Buddhism, at least, oh, the Buddhism of Tibet, the Buddhism of Zen, is certainly not a Cartesian dualist kind of frame. And that for the very simple reason that we don't reify the body and we don't reify the mind. We don't reify matter or consciousness. We don't re reify anything. And the beautiful principle here underlying the Buddhist refutation of Cartesian dualism is that if you reify any two things, any two things at all, then there's no possible, within that reified framework, there's no possibility of any causal interaction of them at all. If I re reify my iPod, is that an iPod? No, it's not, a, it's not an iPod. That's an iPhone. Okay. I, hello, my, talk to me. Talk to me. Come on, you did it last time. Oh, I thought it would. There, here, talk to me. See, you, you want to know whether it's conscious. Yeah, it, at least it reacts. And so, it just died. Okay, but I got an iPhone and I got a digital clock, right? If these two are inherently existent, truly existent, then there's no way they can causally interact. If one really understands the teachings on emptiness, the middle way view, 
if the iPhone and the clock are inherently existent, they cannot causally influence each other. I won't try to elaborate on that, but it's a very, very deep insight. If that's true for an iPhone and a digital clock, then it's going to be equally true for mind and matter. If they're inherently real, there's no way they can impinge upon each other. But the obvious truth is that they do. The placebo effect is just one long series of mental states influencing the brain, the immune system, digestion, and so forth and so on. And of course, chemicals such as alcohol and LSD and, and so forth and so on influence mental states. So the Buddhist view is not Cartesian dualism. It's roundly refuted. Long before the modern science got around to refuting Cartesian dualism, Buddhism already shot it dead. But what comes out of this is, is certainly not just a dualism, but a pluralism, that there are not just two types of phenomena, mind and matter in the world, there's a much wider variety of phenomena, not just these two categories that we in the modern world have conceived of. And what carries on from lifetime to lifetime is indeed an immaterial continuum of consciousness, but it's not just a, fl a, a flow of consciousness, it's also a space that is a substrate also goes along with. And that is, there is an indivisibility that is, they're not the same thing, but they are completely of the same nature. The substrate consciousness and the substrate. You can't have the substrate without substrate consciousness. You ha can't have substrate consciousness without the substrate, right? And so those two, so it's two carrying on. Beyond this life is both consciousness and the space is carrying on together. But then it's not just two, it's three. And that is, in Tibetan Buddhist parlance, subtle energy subtle energy. It's physical. It's not material, it's not composed of atoms, but it's physical. And this is, a, this is a distinction made also in modern physics. An electromagnetic field is physical, it's not, it's not material, not made out of atoms. An electromagnetic, an electromagnetic field passes through absolutely empty space. There's not a single atom there. It's not material, but it is physical. You can measure it physically. So as in modern physics, there are things that are physical but not material, like when in Buddhism there are things that are physical and not material, not made of atoms. And this field of energy, this field of energy, the continuum of subtle energy, it's physical and it's not material. And that is indivisible from the space, the substrate. And according to Kalachakra, it is that energy field that is actually the repository of karmic imprints, memories, and so forth and so on. So it's not simply a mind-body dualism. It is an energy-space-consciousness continuum that carries on from lifetime to lifetime, and it can be investigated here and now. And if one investigates it deeply enough, then we may, through one's own experience, come up with compelling evidence that, in fact, this preceded this life, empirical evidence to that effect, and then, in fact, that it carries on beyond this life, too. If this is true, again, I'm not suggesting anybody, oh, now that I've spoken, hopefully, so eloquently about this, now you believe it, because I said it and I was really clever. Where does that go? You just have one more religious belief, right? But if this is taken as a, possibly, if one wishes, if it seems sensible, as a working hypothesis, if this can be put to the test of experience, that would be a tremendous thing. Now, of course, Buddhism said, well, we've already done it for 2,500 years. What are you waiting for? So we're the generation that hasn't put it to the test of experience. hundred generations before us have. They said, hey, this is a done deal. We've already done this experiment. If you haven't do it, then you do it. Find out for yourself. But don't just rely upon old dead people, because then you've just reduced Buddhism to a religion.
Nothing more than a religion. Just beliefs based upon dead authority. That's kind of too bad. If we didn't have consciousnesses, then we could say, well, you know, Tsongkhapa had a consciousness, he had a shop. But since I'm not conscious, what can I do? You know. But since we're as conscious as anybody else, then the experiment waits to be done. So let's jump in and blow our minds. Settle your body in its natural state and your respiration in its natural rhythm. And for a little while, settle your mind with the qualities of ease, stillness, and clarity, attending to the sensations of the in and out breath, relaxing and releasing the breath and thought with every out breath.
let your eyes be at least partially open. Your gaze resting evenly in space, without attending to any object, without doing anything, just being present. Just being present with the reality, the experience of being present, the raw, immediate experience of awareness. Experiment with breathing through the mouth or the nostrils. See which one gives a greater sense of looseness, of ease in the body, a greater unimpededness in the flow of the breath. And now from this ground zero of the awareness, its natural resting place, launch your attention up into space, directly upwards. It's not a matter of visualizing something, some ball or orb of light or expanding balloon. It is simply a matter of directing your attention upwards as far as your mind can reach. Direct your awareness upwards into space with no object, no target, nothing to latch onto.
let your awareness come and return to its own place, utterly at rest, loose and relaxed. Now direct your attention to the left, out and out and out to the left. back to the center, back to a place of rest, simply letting your awareness illuminate its own nature, resting in the knowing of knowing. Whatever thoughts arise, release them instantly. To the best of your ability, remain in a flow of non-conceptual awareness, sheer naked presence. Direct your awareness now to the right, as far as you can extend. back to the center.
direct your attention downwards into empty space with no object. back to the center. Now see if you can so deeply relax your body and mind that you can allow the locus of your awareness, the place of perspective, to descend to your heart, which is to say the heart chakra, the center of your chest, This becomes your center, not looking down on it, but being aware from there. Not visualizing the heart, not visualizing anything, just letting your awareness descend to that space.
And now release your awareness into space. Open space, not just the space in front, 360 degrees. Release your awareness into space with no object. while gently sustaining the, the flow of awareness of awareness. a sense of ease and looseness, stillness and clarity, resting in the sheer luminosity, the sheer cognizance of awareness, quietly releasing any thought as soon as it arises.
Lasso. If you read philosophy of mind or psychology, neuroscience and so forth, you may have encountered quite a number of definitions of consciousness, theories of what happens to consciousness at death. I haven't, I have, I'm expressing my own ignorance here, but I yet have not yet encountered a single scientific theory of consciousness that can actually be put to the test of experience. I mean, for example, the latest one that seems to be really hot, and that is consciousness is nothing more than integrated information. So now some experiments are going to be run on what? Integrated information. Which is fine. Why shouldn't they study integrated information? That's something you can study. People in artificial intelligence do it all the time. But what actually does that tell us about consciousness, except for what you decided was true before you ever began the experiment? And that is consciousness is equivalent to integrated information. That doesn't tell you anything about consciousness. It just took a word that you didn't know the referent of and then defined it in terms of something you do understand and you can study objectively. And so this... Uh, he's a very nice man. I enjoyed a long conversation with him about a year and a half ago, this world-class neuroscientist. When I challenged him on one point that he made, when he said, this is, the, this is something like the best theory in consciousness there is. And I asked him, have you really checked out all the theories? And then he came right back, very humbly, very nicely. He said, oh, you got me, that's true. How about this is the best empirical, quantifiable, objective study of consciousness? He said, well, you're the expert. But what if consciousness isn't quantifiable? And what if it's not empirical in the sense of being objectively measurable? What if it's not physical? I mean, why should you assume the conclusion before you even start the research? And then isn't that completely skewed research that you would laugh out of the lab if anybody else did it that didn't embrace your worldview? So the Christian theory may very well be right. Who knows? But I don't see how it's testable if people go from here to heaven and they don't send postcards back, you know, or communicate. You know, I don't mean to ridicule it, but really, how, how do you test that? Because it was a one-way trip. It's a one-way trajectory. So it may be true, but I don't see it as a scientific theory, and I don't think really any scientists do either. So it's simply a matter of belief. It's basically wait and see. And all of the materialistic theories of consciousness, I've not found even one that can be tested. They're simply assuming what the conclusion, they're taking the end game and then assuming that for the starting point, and then say, now let's do some research. That seems really silly to me. I mean, if they enjoy doing that. I mean, parlor games are parlor games. But that's not how science is really done. You don't simply assume the conclusion and then go off and prove that it's true. And we're not doing that in Buddhism either. We're not assuming that re rebirth must be true and now let's meditate to try to prove rebirth. We're just going in as clearly as we can to investigate experientially and see what comes up. So one may believe, indeed, first. That's true. But I was really quite taken by a statement I just sent off to um, oh, a, fr a friend of mine in Nepal. Um, a statement from Padmasambhava where he said, among different teaching traditions, there are some who teach theory first, and you really learn the theory. So the 12-15 year Kempo training in the Nyingma tradition, Kagyu tradition, you really learn Buddhism. It's a really good training. You learn Sutrayana, Vajrayana, Mahamudra, Dzogchen. They really study it. The Sakyapas have excellent training. The Gulupas could even be 15 or 20 years of training. You really know Buddhism well. You can answer almost any question about Buddhism after you've had that kind of training. And then, if you're a really good student, then you go off and you practice after that. So he said, there's teaching traditions like that where you really, really study and then you do practice. And frankly, that's pretty similar to how you study physics. You start studying physics, what, in 
middle school, right? You're not doing any groundbreaking research. You're just learning what all of the great people in the past have done. And you try to replicate their experiments. And if you got it wrong, you got it wrong. But they did it right. And you do that all the way through high school. You do that all the way through undergraduate work. And maybe in graduate work, maybe you'll do something that nobody's ever done before. But that's after you've been well-trained for 15 years to know what's true based upon other people's research. And that's good. That's good. We don't expect kids in middle school to be challenging Newton or Einstein or what have you. And so what the Kembos and the Geishis are doing is pretty much how you study neuroscience, how you study physics, chemistry, biology, and so forth. You get a massive dose of theory, and you try to replicate other people's exper experiments a little bit, maybe. Uh, and then, maybe at graduate, postgraduate work, you do your own research. Padmasambhava said, my approach is different. In my approach, you first settle your mind in its natural state. You achieve the meditative state, which is one of meditative equilibrium, establishing resting in the substrate consciousness, and then you really do the research. The theory comes after the experience. Theory comes meditation first, and theory comes out. The view comes out of the meditation, rather than getting thoroughly, I don't want to use the word indoctrinated, but how do you say, because that word is very pejorative, and I don't mean that, but I think you know what I mean without being pejorative. You know what I mean, yeah? You're really learning the system first, and then you study it. And then you try to do some experimental work. He said, well, my approach is, first of all, settle your mind as natural state, achieve the meditative state, and then venture off. So the view comes out of your experience. So it's really clean. It's really clean. No one can say, oh, this is just indoctrinating yourself to try to experience what you already believed, which is one of the big criticisms leveled against contemplatives. Is you're just indoctrinating yourself into the dogma, the doctrine that you already believed in the first place. Well, not in Padmasambhava. So I think it's actually very refreshing. Probably a pretty good idea. So, there we are. Enjoy your day. Onward and forward.